Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of DNVR Biz. I'm your host, Brandon Spano. Hope you had a nice long weekend. If you forgot, we don't do podcasts on Fridays, so you had to go three days there. Hopefully, that allowed some of you to catch up and binge last week's pods. If you were already caught up, here you go. You've got another here today, and we're going to keep these pumping here all the way until Thursday. We'll keep doing four a week as long as I can keep it up. Today, we have Natty Zola on. I'm really, really excited about this interview. He is the director at Techstars Boulder. He's a general partner at Matchstick Ventures, and he's an investor in this company. He's a friend of mine. He's a really, really special guy. He's different than anybody I've ever met. He sees the world in a different way. He sees people in a different way. He's super unique, and I have a really special relationship with him, uh, one that's built off of growth and understanding and learning and uh, sharing books positivity it's it's you know he's really really a special guy and and uh, he's one of those people that uh, i think anybody that uh, you ask about him they'll probably say those things that i just said so i'm really excited to jump into this let's go right into the books Right now, I am reading a new book, Ben Horowitz, the author of Hard Thing About Hard Things, one of my favorite books of all time. He put out, what you do is who you are, and I don't have a quote from it today, but he does start with an amazing story about Toussaint Louverture, who I did not know much about. He led a revolt in the late 1700s. He was a former slave in Haiti. When it wasn't even Haiti, it was actually a French colony called St. Domingue at the time. He was a slave there. He kind of talked himself and worked himself, educated himself and, and built relationships to the point to where the people that had the power felt like he was an ally and they freed him from his slavery, which was unheard of at the time. According to the book, about one in a thousand slaves were in, would end up being freed. He then leads a slave revolt. He builds an army. He takes over and, and uh, I, I shouldn't say takes over, but he defeats other European colonies at the time and ends up being the emperor of, of Haiti. Uh, or the president, governor of Haiti. I'm not sure what they called it at the time. So this was a guy that started as a slave there, ended up running the country. Really incredible. Really incredible. And so that that's a pretty powerful opening story to the book. I'll let you know how it progresses. Let's go straight to Bitcoin. Right now, it is just over 9,300. It's actually just below 9,300. It's at 9,290. Uh, as of the recording of this, it is up about a half percent because it's been down. So it's it's been trailing between 91 and, and 9,250 right now for the last 24 hours or so. And so uh, it's starting to rise a little bit. We'll see what happens there. It's 30-day low is 87, so it's still not quite there. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Let's go to the stock market here. I want to talk about Disney. Disney is down 
another point and it's been down every day for the last three or four days it's down to 111 right now what's interesting about this stock is that it keeps getting dinged whenever there's bad coronavirus news because everybody thinks that disneyland and disney world is going to have to close their brick and mortar you know uh facilities and what do they call them amusement parks which is really interesting because, you know, Disney owns ESPN and it owns ABC and Disney has a subscription service that has 50 million active subscribers that are billed monthly. So it just seems crazy for me to sell this thing because people can't go ride the roller coasters. So 110.40 looks like a great value on Disney and... You know, this is a company that pre-COVID was trading at 148, 147, uh, above 140 all the way up until March. So it seems like a hell of a value. But what do I know? That'll do it. Let's jump to the interview with Techstar's director and Matchstick Ventures general partner, Natty Zola. All my life, been grinding all my life. Sacrifice, hustle, pay the price. Want a slice? Got to roll the dice. That's why all my life I've been grinding all my life. Look, all my life been grinding all my life. Sacrifice, hustle, pay the price. Want a slice? Got to roll the dice. That's why all my life I've been grinding all my life. Maddie, thanks for joining me, man. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for jumping on. You're one of the busiest people I know. So, and I people say that about everybody, but you're legitimately like one of the busiest people I know. So, well, you know what? I've I've changed from saying my life is busy to saying my life is full. Busy feels <laughs> like it's bad. Full feels like it's good. Right? It's by by choice. You know, what I've started to do is I really leave my calendar completely open for meaningful things. If people say like, hey, can we meet? I, I'm almost doing no meetings uh, that can be done over the phone or a Zoom or uh, an email. I'm trying to just really just be able to do as much like high level stuff as I, or I, sh I should say not, not high level, but just kind of a long vision, big problem solving, tackling big things, you know, I'm trying to put as much of that, I guess what I'm saying on my schedule as I can and, and not trying to tie myself down to a bunch of tedious stuff, you know? It's hard though, right? I mean, you got, you're leading a, a real company here. It's yeah, hard. yeah. It's hard to uh, do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Let's, let's jump right into some of this stuff that I want to talk to you about today. And, and this will be the first kind of investment heavy podcast we've had, even though I've had other investors on. And what's interesting about you is like I had, we had Yu Chang on, we had Brandon Watson on, both those guys active investors, but also still really heavy in operations and operation background. And I think still even identify somewhat even with themselves as uh, operations people that just happen to invest you're a little different because although you do have an operational background, you're very helpful in that. I see you, and, and, and maybe this is unintentional, but you project as an investor, like you, it's like you're in your post-operational life. <laughs> is that, That's is that perfect? All purpose? right. I've, I, my, my mask has worked. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I think the funny thing for me is I think of myself as entrepreneur first, investor second. Okay. But the more that I've become an investor and the more investments I've made, I think it can't, you can't help but start to 
take the lens of whatever you're doing that day and, and see the world through that lens, which I think is good and bad, frankly, right? I, I think it's good to, to know that, you know, in my day-to-day job, my responsibility is to generate great returns for our investors and our fund. And so that is the lens that I look at the world on. But when I meet with entrepreneurs and work with them, I really try to switch hats and put on that founder hat because I've been in your shoes. I've been in the trenches and starting from zero. And I think if I, if I was a founder, I would want the investor to show up with that hat on, not necessarily the investor hat. So it's a dance and I'm not sure I always uh, do it right, but hopefully, hopefully I straddle the line when needed. I want to talk to you about heuristics because I, I feel like this is something that is, is super heavy in the investor world. And uh, I've even had labels put on me like, not the typical founder that we invest in or, you know, and, and some of that is, is media driven when you're raising money inside of a tech world near media. But a lot of it is just because of this, this, this set of heuristics that exist uh, among investors where I think that they're looking for a particular someone and a particular something. And I, I can tell you that if you have it, you hide it well. I don't, I've never felt that from you. I've really always felt that you were looking for something different and something special. And I really appreciate that a lot. I can tell you as, as somebody that's from a little different world than a lot of the people that I compete with and do business with. And, and honestly, most important people in my circle are, you know, are from a different world than me. But anyway, I, I say all this because uh, I just, I guess I wanted to dive into your brain and hear if this was something that you were purposefully trying to do that has taken you a while to get down. If you entered in the investor space and said, Hey, I want to approach this and, and, and give different kind of people a chance. Or, you know, if this was just natural for you that you just, you just naturally are inclined to, to operate this way. Like what's, what's the, yeah. what's the crux of it? Well, thanks for asking the question. And I appreciate you thinking of it that way. Cause that is my intention is I think when you look back at the best returns generated in, in venture capital, which is where I spend my time, it's almost always from stuff that's not better or cheaper, but is actually different. Yeah, so I think what I'm looking for is things that are different, right? If, if, if you just play it out, if you invest in the stuff that looks the same, it all ends up getting commoditized and a race to the bottom and really competitive. If you invest in the stuff that looks wacky or different or non-consensus and you end up being right, that's where the huge companies or huge outcomes lie, right? Who, who would have thought that you would allow people to sleep in, your, in the extra room in your house? Like that was crazy talk in 2009. And one of the biggest companies created in the last decade was Airbnb. That you would get in a stranger's car and, and let them drive you somewhere without even thinking twice about it was crazy in 2008. In 2009, it was less crazy. And now, well, I guess not now with, with the changing landscape around COVID, but we do it all the time. You know, these innovations that look crazy at the time are the things that actually end up being big. Now, the challenge is there's a big difference between being seeing something that's non-consensus and getting it right and something that's non-consensus and getting it wrong. What's interesting about venture capital and what I'm lucky to do in my job is I get to make a lot of bets and a lot of swings on stuff that I think might be non-consensus and right. And it's actually okay if I get that wrong. One of the things I value about the startup ecosystem is failure is celebrated and known as just another step on the journey, as long as you learn from it. So will I make investment mistakes? Absolutely. Have I made mistakes? Absolutely. Will I continue to make mistakes? Absolutely. But when we get it right, it really is, is uh, industry changing companies. So 
Thanks for saying that. I mean, I think that's on the business side. And then on the founder side, I tend to be a more people-centric investor. So I like entrepreneurs with different backgrounds. I grew up in Boulder. I love Colorado. So I'm a huge fan of DNBR. I love all the Colorado sports teams, but I didn't go to Stanford. I didn't go, you know, I didn't, I actually wasn't a computer engineer out of college. I had a ton of privilege. I'm a white male. I grew up in a middle-class family of teachers. So I recognize that I've had a huge advantage from the get-go, but I like these untraditional founders. I like hustlers. I like the underdogs. You know, I'm not quite as an underdog as some of the founders I work with, but you know, I didn't, I didn't go the traditional path to get here. And I just really resonate with folks who think differently. So, you know, I don't know, that's just my mindset on investing. Yeah. I, I definitely think that you can feel that you can definitely sense that, you know, as someone who's talked to a ton of investors and spent time with investors and we tried to raise money in different areas and sometimes big money, sometimes small and angel and VC and all the things uh, that definitely resonates. Well, Let's can I give let, you a shout out here real quick? Yeah, you know, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. I was trying to remember when we first met and I know that, uh, you know, we explored investing in the past and I said no. And then, uh, you know, you did an amazing job of going out of your way to build a relationship with me. And for anyone who's out there who's aspiring to raise money, Brandon did this incredibly well. I said no the first time around and he kept reaching out. He kept in touch. He kept, we built a relationship over text. Then we started doing calls together. He kept building a great product and he was incredibly persistent. And I'd say of the traits that I look for in entrepreneurs, that's one of them. He was also fearless, right? Like he didn't take the no and think, well, you know, I might be embarrassed to reach back out to Natty because he said no. No, you kept asking for help. We started sharing book recommendations. You were just relentless around building a relationship. And ultimately that's what got me to invest was that relationship that we built. And so for the entrepreneurs out there, you don't be afraid to, if you hear no, keep building that relationship. Investments are made not way less over the actual what you're doing, but the who relationship that you're involved in with that investor. So Brandon did an incredible job of that back in the day and still does it. And it's, you know, re realistically, everyone can do that. Like it's not a special skill set. It's really just a mindset. That's awesome. Yeah. I really appreciate you saying that. I can tell you honestly that on the relationship side of this, I never really felt like I was trying to purposefully like build a relationship. You know, what's funny is that I feel like growers tend to find each other. And a lot of people just assume that I think a lot of uh, successful people or uh, high achievers are growers. But as you know, you meet a lot of people, you know, I mean, a good friend of mine is one of the most successful people I know. You know, we both know this guy and, and he's running a business right now. that's worth a hundred million dollars. And like the guy only like reads fiction and he like um, anything I send him that is like business wise, he like refused to listen to it or read it. And, you know, so in, in whatever, like it's cool, whatever. But uh, I love that. You know me, like I, I, I'm inspired by the simplest things and stuff. And so I love, you know, finding people that read books and you'll send me a book and then you'll say, read this. And then two days later, I'll, I'll uh, send you my, my synopsis on it. You'll say like, geez, man, that was fast or whatever, you know, but I just love digesting information and learning and growing, you know? So when you find other people that, that grow and learn, it's addictive. You want to be around them more. You want to talk to them more, you know? Amen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't give you too, too, uh, too much space to, to go off of that. Let's talk about uh, Matchstick Ventures versus Techstars. You're in this interesting situation because you're the director at Techstars, which is a, an incredibly successful accelerator. And, you know, I, I mean, even calling it that is kind of underselling it because there's so many accelerators now. It feels like 
you know, every one out of three guys on, on LinkedIn has an accelerator they want you to sign up to. But this is like one of the originals. This is, this is the OG. It's, you know, put out a, a, just a vast number of successful companies and successful founders. And on top of that, you have this opportunity to become a, a general partner at Matchstick Ventures and you take that on. And my assumption was going to be that you were going to drop tech stars. I think I even texted you about this. You're like, yeah, yeah you know, I haven't really uh, committed to much or thought about it much or whatever. And then here you are, you're a couple of years later and you're still kind of doing both. How, how have those kind of fit together other than deal flow obviously makes sense, but you know, how have you kind of balanced this and, and does matchstick looks for things different than tech stars? You know, I, I guess I'm just wondering how you've married these two together. Yeah. Well, the, the great thing is that there's just so much overlap between them in both of those roles. I'm looking to invest in the brightest, most interesting, different founders, the underdogs that I come across. And some of them, it's better to go through the accelerator and I have that as a way to support them. Some of them maybe are not interested in the accelerator, although I think all founders should, regardless of their level of experience. It's just an incredible ecosystem to be a part of, not only the business learning, but also the connections that can get made through Techstars. You know, some entrepreneurs don't want to do an accelerator or can't do an accelerator. And so we're lucky to have Matchstick Ventures as a fund that can directly invest in the companies that don't go through Techstars, although I encourage all of them to do it. And then Matchstick will invest in companies that come out of Techstars. But in both of those roles, really all I want to do is help great entrepreneurs succeed. And I have a, a bias towards entrepreneurs in Colorado. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm from Boulder, born and raised in Boulder. I think that we are building one of the best entrepreneurial communities in the world right here in Colorado, whether it's in Denver, Colorado Springs, the Western Slope, or in Boulder. We're doing entrepreneurship our way, a better way, which is more of a holistic, humane way of doing entrepreneurship where we have huge ambition, but we're also willing to you know, go take that bike ride, go ski that run, and, and live a real life around it. And I don't think you have to make a trade-off to build something meaningful and big to also live the lifestyle you want to lead. And if you're really motivated on the project that you're working on or the change you want to see in the world, you know, your lifestyle is not going to get in the way of that. You're going to accomplish it. And you're probably going to do a better job if you have those outlets. So in both of those roles, I am lucky. I get to work with entrepreneurs. I have a deep love for entrepreneurship. I love the bravery. I love the desire to make change in the world. And to be a small part of an entrepreneur's journey, I mean, that's why I say my life is full. I get to wake up every day and work with folks like you, Brandon, to help you achieve your goals. There's no better feeling in the world. So yeah, I would think of Techstars and Matchstick as not necessarily two separate things, but just one all-encompassing platform that I have to help entrepreneurs succeed. That's really cool. That's really cool. You know, a lot of times ego in business gets in the way of things like this. So I'm assuming you have a terrific relationship with everybody at Techstars to allow you to, you know, do both of these things because they obviously help leverage each other. Oh yeah, Techstars has been incredibly supportive. And uh, I actually went through Techstars when I was an entrepreneur in 2009. So I've been involved in the ecosystem for 11 years now. And basically everything good that's come from my entrepreneurial career has come from relationships there. So I'm super lucky and fortunate to be in that ecosystem. They've given back a ton to me and we have a great working relationship together. Uh, I want to talk about founder versus company. It's something you touched on a little earlier and you were saying that, that you tend more to lean towards, you know, people uh, and, and not necessarily companies. And, and I know that there's so many layers to this, but I would love for you to just talk about 
being kind of people centric and founder centric, maybe investing in somebody that you believe in instead of kind of uh, this company that has product market fit and, and all of these things that you're looking for. And, and I know you want everything that I just mentioned, but there's absolutely, I think, a difference in approach between investor to investor, people that truly say, this is just somebody that I believe in so much, I think that they're going to win no matter what the, the market dictates. And then somebody saying, hey, this is the perfect company at the perfect time. Can you talk about those two different approaches? Yeah. Yeah, there's some debate in the venture capital world around, is it more important to have a hot market or more important to have a great team? I'm on the side of a great team for a few reasons. One is ultimately this is an endeavor where you work with people. And if I'm going to get up and every day, the first thing I think about is what can I do for the entrepreneurs that I work with? I want to love those people. I want to really passionately believe in what they're trying to do. When I spend time with them on the phone and inevitably they call me at midnight on Friday night, you know, I want to be excited to pick up the phone. And so for me, that's why the human element is so important. And just my experience being an investor at the very earliest stages for a company, you just need the people to be able to overcome all of the challenges of starting a business. And if they don't have those traits, in my view, it doesn't matter how hot the market is, it's not going to take off. And then I just think like, I personally think that life is short and the only thing that really matters is spending it with people that you love and enjoy and uh, help make you better. And so I'd rather work with people that inspire me than maybe catch a hot market any given time. I also feel pretty influenced. I used to work with Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, and one of his main principles is first who. And I really try to take a first who mindset, which means you know the most important thing is to get the right people on the bus. And that's what we that, that that's basically been my mindset from the get go. Like in my career, I've taken more jobs based on who I was working with over what the job was any time of day. It's way more important to work for someone who inspires you or who can teach you than it is the actual job that you're doing. I mean, ideally you can get both, but I would always choose to work for someone great over choosing specific work. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of this story Warren Buffett was telling where he was young and he was essentially um, trying to become a free intern for this investor that had accomplished so much and, and really had this really sharp investment thesis. And um, the guy said like, you know, uh, and he, it, and Warren Buffett was pretty much saying like, I'll do anything for you, you know, anything that you need. And he was like, it's still like not worth it to me. The value proposition here is so great that you would actually have to pay me to be my intern because that's how much value that I'm giving you here. You can't just walk in here and say, I'll work for free and think that you're giving me value, you know? So, uh, that goes back to that, 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 that. Well the, well, the nice thing for me with being an investor is I actually give cash to people <laughs> and get to work with them. <laughs> you know? I mean, I do hope that they give me back more money in the future, but you know, the initial exchange is I actually get to give money to people and get to work with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Talk about product market fit because this was something you Chang mentioned. This is a everybody's looking for product market fit. You know, some people think that if you have it, it's all you need, you know, and one of the things that's interesting about it is that the market changes uh, and that, you know, you're essentially kind of going back to what you just talked about investing in teams. You need to invest in something that is going to be different by the time that it, you know, gets to the finish line. It's, it's most undoubtedly going to be different. It might be completely different. It might be in a completely different market, actually. 
And so, you know, I, I guess that's one of the things that I always have a hard time with wrapping my head around product market fit because you're essentially investing in something based on product market fit, uh, knowing that uh, the product and the market is going to have to change for it to ultimately get to where it's going to go, right? So how does that work? Yeah. And you actually hit on something I should, I'd should i like to share, which is we have a heuristic where we rank order six things when we're considering an investment. Okay. And I'll go through what they are. First is team. Second is team. Third is team. Fourth is market. Fifth is product. Or sorry, fifth is traction. Sixth is idea or product. And so to your point there, we expect when we make an investment in a company that the product or idea is going to move and change as they explore the market and get to know their customers. If we ever make an investment because we fell in love with the product or the idea, it's largely unlikely to be successful because I don't think I've ever worked with a company where the initial idea they set out with was the idea that got big or really worked. That's super rare. You need to have that growth mindset to be able to learn from your customers and iterate your way towards product market fit. What does product market fit it's so hard to tell. I think that quote that the Supreme Court justice said around when they were trying to define pornography and they said, you know it when you see it, I think that's a little bit around how product market fit feels. Like you don't really know it until you realize for the last four weeks, all we've been doing is serving customers and our customer support line is blowing up and people keep coming back and, and purchasing again. You know, our downloads are way up. Like all of a sudden, usually product market fit is something you realize in retrospect, not when you're actually like getting towards it. And yeah, usually what it feels is the market actually pulling the product out of your hands and you know, your servers are on fire. Your, your, uh, your salesperson is overworked and calling you and saying, I need help. I need help. Like that's really when you get to product market fit. And so my advice to entrepreneurs to find that out is you just need to spend a lot of time with customers, get your product in their hands way earlier than you feel comfortable and iterate your way there until you feel like, wow, people love this product. We're, we're an investor in a company in Denver called Suna. And the moment I knew they had product market fit was when I, I, as an investor who had no connection to a bunch of their customers, they emailed me out of the blue and said, that was a 10x better experience than what, what happened before. And basically what they're doing is helping brands create photos and videos for their products or headshots or whatever. And literally they found, they've created something that's 10 or hundred X better than the alternative. And that's the moment you realize you have product market fit when your customers are proactively recommending you to their, their friends or reaching out and saying that was an incredible experience. Yeah, that's really awesome. I, I, this kind of goes back to my interview with AJ yesterday and it aired today. I don't know if you had a chance to hear that when you had it's the most recent one, but you know, I forgot the exact question, something about like, when did you know that we made it or, 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 you know, when did you know we were accepted? Uh, something because it, it was the conversation was around being disrespected for so long. And he said, eventually, whenever they would go to the games to cover the Pepsi Center, every time a fan won something on the Jumbotron, they were wearing a, a at the time of BS in Denver shirt. Everyone was yeah. wearing BS in Denver shirts everywhere, all over the arena. And he was just like, What am I? This is insane. This is crazy, you know? Uh. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of my fun metaphors is like, you know, a startup rarely has step function growth where you realize like, okay, we've made it. What usually happens is you look back, all of a sudden you wake up five years later and you have a successful company and you're like, you can't trace back the single moment where it became successful or the thing that you did. Maybe there were some like key decisions, but usually the companies that get successful, they just iterated and kept improving, kept improving, kept listening to customers, talking with customers. 
Like one of the things I tell startups is there's only one metric that every single startup can track, no matter what kind of business you are, whether you're a B2B SaaS company, whether you're a media company like DNVR, whether you're a, you run a retail boutique, the number of customers that you talk to each week, that is the only metric that every single company should track. And it doesn't mean that every week you should talk to a certain number of them. And there's no number that makes sense. But the pattern you can see is if you look back and you're like, wow, we haven't talked to a customer for three weeks. That's a huge problem. Even if you're in the mode where we're, Hey, we're heads down, we're building some software right now. You still need to be out there talking with customers and validating what you're doing. The challenge with that though, that you have to be careful is the best companies blend insights from customers with their intuition, right? You don't want to build just what customers tell you they want. The famous saying around this is the Henry Ford saying, you know, he would have delivered a, a faster horse if he listened right. to what people wanted before the automobile. And I think entrepreneurs need to blend this insight from customers, right? You really have to understand their problem. You have to get in their head. You have to live their existence. And then you have to blend that with your intuition of what they want in the future. And so, uh, yeah, I encourage every company to track how many customers do you meet each week or talk to each week. What I say often is that because listening to customers is a huge, huge thing, a, a huge part of what we do. But what I say is that we don't listen to them and then create, we create it and then listen to them. Yeah, and you, you, you get what you guys do a great job of is you launch stuff so quickly, right? You're just, right. you're like, hey, let's do a business podcast. Probably within a week, you put it out. And right. all of a sudden you're like, Hey, Hey, our audience, check this out. What do you think? And people are going to love it or they're not going to love it, right. but you've given them something to interact with. And the only way to get real feedback from customers is let them interact with your product. It's nice to hear them talk about what they think they would maybe want, but just getting them to actually use it and interact with it and then asking them about it is the best data you can get as a startup. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And you know, for me, I, have to go by what they say, because I think that every single thing that we are about to launch is going to change the world. <laughs> and, you would not be a good CEO of a high growth startup <laughs> if you didn't believe that. And so uh, we even talk about, we were going to do a pod called Inside DNVR before we launched this one actually. And it just got, it was a little too much inside. And so we decided to scrap it. But one of the questions was, to our partner team, me, Ryan, Adam, and Eric was, I was asking them, so how did you feel when you got the text that said, and this, it was about the idea, I was about to call them and tell them that we're going to open a bar uh, or that we've got this opportunity and this offer to, we wanted to talk about it. And I said, you guys aren't going to believe in all caps, what just happened? They call me immediately. And I said, and I expected them to be like, oh, I couldn't wait. I, I just, I, I was trying to imagine what it could be. And I said, how did you feel when you got that text? And they said, I just felt like it was like a normal Tuesday afternoon getting a text from you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I remember when you texted me and you were like, Hey, we're going to open a bar. And then I was like, what, <laughs> you know? And then when you, when you put it together, it makes so much sense. And I love, I think that's what you, you guys are thinking so differently about what it means to be a sports fan and what it means to build a relationship with the, sports fans in this community and eventually other communities that I think you're, that's why I think you're really onto something is you're unafraid of thinking differently, right? Someone who was in the, in the status quo would probably not never think about, you know, is there a nine news bar? Like no one would ever think about doing that, but right. could there right. be a DNVR bar? Of course. 
now it seems silly that there wouldn't be one right and you know and we talk about a lot of this goes to brand too and we talk about brand all the time it's something that we put a ton of emphasis on and it's like would you wear and nothing against these these traditional uh, companies but would you wear would an athlete wear like a 1043 the fan face mask or something and it's like you know again nothing against them they do what they do great they're the, they're the best at, at fm radio sports talk but no like the answer is no whereas uh, dnvr you know we have athletes and people wearing dnvr face masks and shirts and hats and because it's it's bigger than uh, this front facing media thing you know yeah and i think today's day and age people are seeking community more than ever i mean covid has accelerated that but you know we're the most connected generation ever yet we routinely feel the most disconnected. And I know from my experience being a DNVR mm-hmm. fan and customer for a long time is when I put on the Broncos podcast and I'm, ha- I feel like I'm hanging out with RK, Zach, you know, the whole crew Mace. And I don't, you know, I know those guys loosely, but they really honestly feel like friends because you've created a community here. And I know for me, even as someone who's busy and spending a lot of time with people, I really value the group that you put together and to have a place to come and talk sports and, and you guys are much more than sports. It's really about family. Uh, and I appreciate that focus that you guys have had. I want to jump back to investment and talk about investing based on your area of, of expertise and, you know, diversification and, and even going outside of diversification because that's super basic term, but opportunity and, and things like that. There are some funds that if it doesn't fit inside of your area of expertise, or inside of their area of expertise, they're not even going to touch it. They're not going to look at it. There's others where they'll say, you know, we really like this team. We don't know a lot about this space and they'll bring in somebody else that does know a lot about that space and get some help on, on learning more about that. I'm reading this Charlie Munger book right now, and this is completely different because this is, you know, public stock market investing, but you know, they have this rating scale, the way that they grade companies and, 80% 80% of companies can't even fit into this grading scale anymore. And they just don't invest in them if they don't fit in their scale, uh, which sounds like so archaic to me, but whatever. I, I know that there's a lot of VC funds that operate in a similar fashion or even angels. So h- how do you look at that entire thing as far as, you know, I, I guess that question directly? Yeah. Well, we, we are generalist software investors. So we are primarily a regionally focused fund. So we invest mostly in Colorado and the Rockies region. My partner is based in Minnesota and he covers the North region up there. And then we invest across some national networks where we have connections. But within that, we're generalist investors. So that means we might invest in everything from a consumer mobile app to some B2B software application, as long as there's a, a component of software around the company. And the reason why we focus on that is we feel like were we to invest in a company, we could really bring an interesting or relevant experience to the table and help them and really move the needle, whether that's avoiding a mistake, making an introduction, rethinking a strategy, because we've seen it play out before. And so I think for us, we really try to stay in that sweet spot. I think that I tend to be someone who focuses, I know you talked about this on a prior podcast, like, do you double down on your strengths or do you try to expand on your weaknesses? Mm. For me, I'm very curious about stuff that doesn't look normal or that I've never seen before, but as long as it's within that same lens of of a software company, because that's where I feel like I can actually add value. And so I try to do a little bit of an in-between there, which is I want to double down on my strengths of being focused on this geography 
and on software companies. But within that lens, I'm very open, and I think investors should be open to looking at stuff that's different or untraditional. Because as I mentioned earlier, that's usually where the most innovative stuff lies. And then for me, like, I, frankly, I know you talk about a lot of business on this podcast. I am not a good public equities investor. I do a little, basically like my crypto, my public equities, like I out, off, outsource that to someone else because I'm not good at that. And what's odd to me is I actually feel like my job is way less risky. I feel way more comfortable betting on a, a high growth, high risk startup than picking an individual public equity these days, just because I don't know that market that well. And I do feel like when I invest in a startup, I can impact the outcome of that company where when I invest in a, a, a token or currency or a public equity, I'm really, I don't have any effect on that. And so that's just my psyche is I like to invest in stuff that I feel like I can impact the outcome of. Yeah, I actually really agree with that 100%. You know, uh, I think that later in my, my career, uh, you know, I, I could see myself being much closer to you than to uh, to a public investor. I, I not only do I love building things and helping people and, and being attached to the startup community, but, you know, I, I think that that's where, I, you know, I guess generally that's just where my motiv- motivation is, is, is that level of it. It's a lot more inspiring. Uh, sometimes, and this will sound crazy to a lot of people that are listening to this, but making money to make money isn't that fun, you know, but uh, when you're, when you're building something and, and that's what we always talk about at DMVR is I'm like, I want to do something and and really do something cool. That's going to deliver a ton of value. And everything we do is around that. We don't do anything half-assed. So we don't do like cheap shirts so we can get high. You know, we don't do cheap masks. We don't do, you know, everything we do, we, we try to do the best we can. Some are better than others, but and it's that entire idea that we just want to do something really cool. And we feel like if we just deliver the most value that it will end up making money by doing that. And I think that that's kind of where you're at. You, you can deliver a ton of value as an investor and as a mentor and as a friend and as anybody who knows you and, and, and with your expertise. And so you're able to to leverage that in a way that helps everybody involved. Whereas public investing, nothing against it is kind of a, it's kind of a put money in to make money thing. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's just not as, as inspirational. With that said, you know, I do put a small percentage of what I make into both of those things, crypto and public. And I think that it is fun. Yeah. And I, and I, yeah. Yeah. And, and I do think it's fun. And there is certain things that I'm super passionate about that I just personally like, 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 you know, for me personally, the way I view the world, I think it's crazy to not invest in like Spotify right now and in sports betting and stuff. So of course, like I'm just, I'm going to invest in that because it's my belief system, you know? Well, well Brandon, I now have the uh, Brandon Spano index, index <laughs> account. So I'm tracking you. So I hope you deliver yeah. some good picks for yeah, me. I'm yeah. looking at you. I, I really, <laughs> I was really uh, questioning myself whether or not I wanted to, to start every pod like that, but uh, I just felt if I did it in a fun recreational way, people would enjoy it. So let's, let's kind of keep this pumping here. I want to talk about diversity at Matchstick. Uh, This is something that you guys strive to do, whether it's people of color, whether it is females, female founders, really anything that you can to kind of get away from the mass, you know, the the biggest chunk of the population that is consuming this or, or, or getting this VC funding. You guys have done a good job of 
not only doing it, but then, you know, being able to talk about it and being open about it and being prideful about it. So talk to me about that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're really supportive of the current movement around racial equality in the country. I mean, it's something that we still have room to grow and learn on. Absolutely. And feel like we can help change. And so we've been lucky at Matchstick and at Techstars, we've invested in seven times the national average in terms of black founders. We're similarly over-indexed on uh, women as founders, you know, working on other underrepresented groups as well in the fund, not because we feel like it's a charity or for that reason, but because we think that they're great entrepreneurs and they're overlooked. And per our conversation earlier around looking for stuff that's different, you know, a lot of these black founders or Latin ex founders or women founders, like they're not getting the attention from most investors. And we think that that's a great opportunity for us. We like to look where other people aren't looking. And so we've done really well investing in those groups. I think we have room to grow. And certainly we as a fund are being run by two white males have to wrestle with our privilege and our, our contribution to the, to the, to the problem um, in the ecosystem and in our industry. And so we're trying to do our best to source more underrepresented founders. We will continue to try to invest in them. We'll, we'll hold the same bar that we hold for a white male founder that we would for any other founder. But if we go out and target these underrepresented groups, I think we'll start to see way more investments happening um, and we're excited to back them. So thanks for, thanks for noticing that. Um, we have work to do. We're still learning a ton, but it's obviously important. And yeah, I, I think there's going to be some incredible companies founded by underrepresented founders in this market, and hopefully we get a chance to work with them. Can you talk to me about investment and how it's different when it's a personal investment and a VC investment, or even accepting somebody into your, into the Techstars Accelerator? And obviously for those listening, you know, uh, we're talking about the difference between Natty using his own money and Natty using somebody else's money, which is, which is different. But outside of that, is there a different in thesis there? Uh, does one have to grow bigger than the other? Is one of them just because you like somebody more than the other? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I, in theory, I can invest out of three different pockets, Matchstick Ventures, Techstars, and my own. And all of those have different other stakeholders that have to get excited about stuff. So with Matchstick, I have another partner in the fund and anything we invest in, we both have to be equally excited about it. So sometimes I might be personally excited about it and maybe my partner Ryan isn't, and that might be a case where then I could invest personally. On the Techstars side of things, you know, we'll really actually invest in anything that we feel like we're interested in. There's a, a small group of us that makes the decisions around the Techstars Boulder program. And so you know, similarly, we want to come to a consensus together on what we're interested in. And then personally, you know, I, I, anything that I invest in personally has the same lens uh, as I would with Matchstick Ventures, which is I'm looking to back the best entrepreneurs working on the most interesting problems and expect the same level of return, regardless of what pocket it comes out of. Yeah. So, you know, there's just different pools and different stakeholders uh, across all of those pockets. And, um, you know, my job is to at the minimum, just go find great entrepreneurs and then figure out, you know, once we find them, what pocket can I support them out of? Okay. Let's jump into this quick question around here. I have three questions for you and we'll, we'll jump right into the very first one, which is the most important book to you. This is an impossible question to answer. I'm looking over here to my right to my bookshelf covered in books. I think if I had to choose one, I'd probably choose Good to Great by Jim Collins. I was lucky enough to work for him for three years and helped contribute on. It's an incredible book. Yeah, yeah a book um, called Great by Choice. 
I, I think these are these three books, Good to Great, Great by Choice, and Built to Last that Jim Collins wrote are probably the seminal books of the last 30 years in terms of company building. They're incredibly well-researched. They Each of them has 10 years worth of research. They are principles and practices that any business can use. And they're not just ideas or anecdotes from people who ended up being successful. These are thoroughly researched insights. And so I love those books because they really taught me how does a great company tick and put me on the path of wanting to apply those principles and that the curiosity around that question of how do great companies tick to the earliest stages. And so I think that that really was formative for me in terms of where I want to spend my energy. So I would say those three, but since, you know, I, I think it's an impossible question to answer, I'm going to give you a little bit longer of an answer. I want to share maybe two others that come to mind for me. One is Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strait and Tattoos on the Heart. I can't remember who wrote that, but those two books are about empathy building. These are stories of just incredible people who have overcome way more in their life. And I read those books once a year to just remind myself of how special people are and how different everyone's journey is and how lucky I am, but also how we as humans need to come together. And so if you want a great read, Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed or Tattoos on the Heart, I'll get you the author for that. But those two books just like, will melt your heart, make you feel both sad and joy, and you'll have tears running down your cheek. That's awesome. That's awesome. Just just added those to my book list here. One of the perks about hosting this, you get, you get book recommendations. Next question, most underrated athlete of all time, in your opinion? I'll go with one of my personal favorites. So I think this probably doesn't exactly answer the question, but someone who I think doesn't get enough conversation around here is Andre Scalaraga. I, oh, when I was wow. a kid, big cat. I loved the big cat and I just loved how he played. I loved his swing. I loved seeing him at first base. I was oh, growing was awesome. up in Colorado when he was at first base and he was my favorite player. And I think he's probably not the most underrated nationally or internationally, but I think he doesn't get enough credit here in, in Colorado. And I just, I don't know, he was one of my favorites that I, I love. He was incredible. Yeah, he was awesome too. I just remember him being incredible. Yeah, I love that. How about the space or business that you're most excited about in the near future? You know, funny thing is like, this is a hard one for me to answer, even though I spend all my time like thinking about and investing in the future. I've learned that I am not a great predictor of what technology or what change is going to be most impactful in the future. But what I'm really good at is, is finding the entrepreneurs who are creating that and, and getting inspired by them and then wanting to back their vision and helping them create that future. So I think I'm going to not answer that question because I'm not someone who's <laughs> oh, like passionate about the future of technology or any technology in particular. I'm passionate about people and I'm passionate about helping people do the things that they want to do. And so the cool thing about my job is every day I meet a bunch of entrepreneurs who have some crazy view of the future and technology. And some of those I'm like, yeah, I want you to create that. And so that's, that's what, who we get to work with. So I don't think I have an answer for that. Okay. All right. All right. So I'm going to throw another one at you then since you didn't answer that one. You started Everlater and you sold that to uh, MapQuest. And so I wanted to ask you, how did you know when to sell? Well, we were, I'll tell you our story in, in the short amount of time possible. And I, uh, hopefully there's some learning in there for folks. We, were, we had raised two rounds of venture capital and our company was going good, not great. We had been through lots of ups and downs and we were, we were doing good, not great. And we were coming to a point in the road where we needed to raise more capital. 
And so we went out on the road and started to try to raise more money. And because we were doing good, not great, it was hard to raise money. And at that same time, we actually got a fortuitous acquisition offer, which was not a huge amount of money, but was showed some interest in our product. And so we talked with our advisors and we, we decided that because it was so hard to raise money, maybe we could leverage this acquisition offer. And actually this was the right time to exit the company. And so we all sat down and looked at it and we said, well, we have two choices here. Either we can shrink the size of the business because we're not going to be able, or we thought it was unlikely to raise that next round of capital, which felt uncomfortable and not really what we wanted to do, or we could try to pursue an acquisition. <laughs> and so we ended up reaching out to a bunch of folks that we had built relationships with, including MapQuest, around a potential acquisition where we could do more combined. And it turned out that there was more interest in an acquisition than there was in fundraising. And so what we realized was to achieve our goal and our mission as a company, we would be more likely to do that partnered up with an acquirer and that ended up being with MapQuest. So I would say like a little bit in our scenario, we didn't choose, the, I mean, we chose to go that path, but I don't think we ever felt like this is the time to sell until it sort of, sh we were already at that point. So that's my story. I've worked with a lot of other companies around trying to figure out that time and I have yet to find the right pattern, but the only underlying thing that I think maybe I've seen across all of them is checking in on the energy of the founding team or the leadership team and seeing, you know, where is their energy level at? It's so hard to run a company. It's hard to build a culture. It's hard to solve those problems day in, day out. And sometimes as an entrepreneur, you've come to the end of your energy or your stock of energy. And maybe that's either the time where you bring on someone to take it to the next, to the next inning. So sometimes I think CEOs should think of themselves as starting pitchers. Some starting pitchers go two innings and they need to get pulled and they bring in the right reliever to, to take them to the ninth inning. Some starting pitchers pitch the complete game. That's really cool when that happens, but that's rare. And I think CEOs should think about it as, you know, I'm a starting pitcher. Let's see how many innings I can go until I'm gassed. Mm. And then let's either sell the company or let's bring in someone to take it those, those last innings. I always ask myself that, like, just being super honest and transparent, I always yeah. say like, so am I like, I, I feel really confident that I'm the market number two guy. I even feel, you know, I, I've visualized beyond that. Am I like a 15 market CEO? I honestly have no idea. I don't know. You know, uh, I know that based on where my, where I get the most excitement and fulfillment doesn't tend to be at that scale. Will it be because it's mine though? I, like, I have no idea, you know, we'll have to go there, you know, but I think that that's, I think that's like a super important conversation to have with yourself. I have it with myself all the time, you know, and, and I, I think that for me, I've always been make this win first and everything else second, whether that means if I have to give someone equity because they're amazing and I want them to come in and help me do this. And I've been great about putting people around me that can say no and, and help me make big decisions and stuff. So I'm confident. You, you know, I think those are important things for, for CEOs to think about. Another thing I want to encourage is say, if you feel like your energy's up, that is not failure. Like that actually the best thing you can do is to recognize that and realize it and bring yeah. that up with your board, with your teammates, because right. You know, I think that there's too much ego in business around this heroic, like I can do anything. I never get tired. Mm -hmm. I never yep. need help or support. And that is honestly BS. You know, you need help. Everyone, not you as in Brandon, but yeah, you right. as in Brandon, yep. right? Yep. Every yep. one of us needs help. And the best thing we can do is always take that lens. What's best for the company? 
And maybe that means that I need to step back at some point because I'm tired or because, man, I am not good at market. You know, once it hit market 15, like I reached my ceiling and right. I don't love it anymore. Yeah, and exactly. So like, you know, I encourage all the entrepreneurs out there to a be checking in with yourself and two be unafraid of bringing that up with the people in your life because they're there to support you and to, to pursue the best vision for the company. The only way you can do that is to be honest and vulnerable and open with everyone around you. And so I encourage that. Yeah. You're always the founder, you know, no matter what. Uh, So you don't have to be the CEO. That's a, you know, it's a title and it's, it's like whatever, but one of my favorite stories is SendGrid, a local company went public, went through Techstars, incredible journey. The three founders quickly realized they didn't want to be the leaders of the company. And so I think around the series A funding, they brought in an external CEO and you know, if you ask those three founders, would they have made an IPO if they had held on to that, those seats as CEO or COO and CTO? Absolutely not. You know, they needed right. to bring in that expertise. Oh, totally. I'll tell you what, they loved the journey probably more than being in the CEO seat. They got to run product. They got to be engineers. They got to still be on the board. And they were not, you know, they didn't have ego tied up in, I have to be in the seat. What they wanted to do was achieve the mission of the company. They wanted to do something big and they didn't care what their title was, and they were really well rewarded for that. I love that, I love that. And I'll share this quick one here before we get out of here. And it goes to Barstool and, you know, a polarizing company, but you know, at the end of the day, you have this guy in Dave Portnoy that is this supreme content creator, probably best head of content in, in sports media right now from a whatever level or perspective. And, you know, they, he essentially says like, okay, this thing is beyond me, you know, and Shernan buys a big chunk of it. And they're like, okay, what are we doing on the business side? And he doesn't know what he's doing on the business side. And they go out and they interview the, the, you know, a bunch of CEOs, they find Erica Nardini and she's like incredible. And she comes in and she talks about how she shows up there and there she's finding like checks in the office that like weren't even cashed and stuff, you know? And so she has to go through this whole hall, reorganize the entire corporation, get through all this legal stuff, bring in counsel that like wasn't some guy that Dave went to high school with, do this whole huge thing. And then look at them now, like they end up selling to Penn for $450 million. She's on Penn's board now. And she's the she's the chairman on, on Barstool's board, you know, they go and cut the ribbon at at wall street and go public and the whole thing. So, and it's like, you know, that's something that's important, right? The CEO of Barstool there, that was not weakness. That was strength, right? It was strength to realize that, that he needed to bring someone else in. It was strength being that self-aware and man, you know, I think also like, you know, probably a lot of the listeners on here are probably male. And I think, you know, we as men need to realize that, strength is not being so stubborn that we're unwilling to recognize when we need help or when we need change. You know, strength is, is actually realizing that and asking for help and being, you know, raising your hand. And so I think we as men, you know, need to, need to grow and be more comfortable doing that. Love that. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to win. If you, if you really want to get there, you really do want to win and you, and it's not just, words and you're saying you'll do anything well sometimes doing anything means actually that it, you know you need someone other Asking than for you help. yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. well awesome man this was so great i uh, thank you so much for being on bunch of amazing insight here 
I'll probably listen to this and and treat a couple of your quotes on on Twitter like you were um, uh, some genius sitting up in a sitting up on a shrine somewhere. So that'll make you uncomfortable. But I really appreciate you having to come on, man. It was awesome. Thanks, Brandon. Keep up the good work. Happy customer and fan. Got to roll the dice, that's why. All my life, I've been grinding all my life. Look, 